Welcome, listeners, to episode four of the Predlines podcast. Uh, we're fortunate this week to be rejoined by our uh, formerly absent companion, Corey, who was, uh, who was out a couple weeks ago attending a concert. So, Corey, how are you doing this week? Doing all right. Got that uh, Thanksgiving hangover taken care of and ready to get back at it. Yeah, yeah, I had a, a kind of an interesting one. I, uh, my, my brother's in the military, so we went down and uh, got we, we ate some, like, picnic Thanksgiving, so it was different uh, from from the usual, but still a good time with family. And George, how are things up uh, in the in the cold Midwest? It's cold. It's, uh, it's, it's real cold. <laughs> it's like 30 today. I don't go outside anymore. <laughs> I mean, I never really ever went outside, but I especially don't now. <laughs> yeah, well, at least uh, once the weather gets cold, we get some, you know, always hockey to look forward to. Uh, and, you know, we, we've, I uh, guess we've been on, off the air for um, a little over a week now. So in the meantime, the, the Predators have had, uh, in my opinion, a really great string of games. I think uh, they ended up winning maybe nine out of 11 um, and getting points in 10 of those games. So I'd say that's um, that's not a bad stretch of games at all. Definitely uh, the, the Western Conference and, and the Central uh, specifically are, are looking pretty tough, but uh, the Predators have definitely hung with the group. Uh, currently tied for points with Winnipeg. Um, as we're recording this, but I think Winnipeg has the edge on goal differential. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess we should just jump right into it. We have uh, several games that we need to we need to break down if we're going to cover the past week. You know, they've been playing pretty much every other night. So uh, if you can think all the way back to I believe the twentieth, they played. Uh, they hosted the Winnipeg Jets, um, got the five three win. And my first takeaway was that uh, we started to see how many goals the Predators need to get. Um, early so that they can brace for the uh, inevitable third period breakdown. Uh, Corey, what were your your takeaways from this Winnipeg game? Uh, similar to that, I mean, just how how we're going to survive the onslaught at the end. I mean, giving up these leads late in the game, having a couple, you know, having a, a lead going into the third period, and then just kind of squandering that's been the story of the year, at least for me. But you know, keeping a a, a high high octane Winnipeg offense, you know, down to three goals, this was pretty impressive. So that was my big takeaway. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I can't be too upset about the game, obviously getting, getting the win against um, someone you're really, you know, close in the standings with uh, in the division is always a, a really big deal. It was kind of the same story. I, I was, I was a little more impressed um, with the five on five performance of the predators. They, they had the advantage in things like uh, high danger chances, um, Actually, that may have been the only thing they had the advantage in, uh, obviously goals. <laughs> but um, in terms of kind of the, the possession stats, they were outplayed in the game, especially in the third period. You can kind of see um, they just took a nosedive uh, in terms of allowing Winnipeg to take shots. And sure enough, they uh, they started to kind of claw back, but uh, time was on the Predators' side. George, uh, you know, I hate to always... Um, kind of put you in a corner as the pessimist but i'm, I'm assuming you were <laughs> you were kind of uh uh i don't even know what to say uh, disappointed by their predator by the predator's performance in this one i don't want to say that i was disappointed i just the pair the parents had a very good second period and then a very less than mediocre first period and then an okay second period um and just going through numbers uh the five on five numbers look okay once you kind of adjust for uh, for shot or for score and venue, and just for those that don't know, when you adjust for score and venue, uh, it's kind of taking into account that as teams start to build up a lead, uh, teams that are down will start playing more aggressively and, and therefore you know shoot more, have more shot attempts, 
and that can skew Corsi and Fenwick in ways that you know the game's not really reflective of. Uh, and so the Predators just they didn't do very well besides that second period. But when you kind of adjust for uh, for shots or for score and venue, it looks a lot better, especially in that third period. Um, the biggest takeaway I got from this game against the Jets was they did a really good job of at least five on five. Uh, keeping the puck out of the slot and out of high danger chances, like you said, where that was like the one area where they beat him in. And if I had to, if I had it my way, I would rather the Preds beat every team in high danger chances. I would rather the Predators get crushed in Corsi and Vonick, but as long as they, as long as they win the high danger chances ratio, I think it, it's a solid night. Um, and I, yeah, they scored two goals because of it, at least on five on five. And it's obviously more when you count for power play time. Right there, that was you know is another example of how dominant the the Predators' power play has been this year, especially at home. Uh, you know, as I kind of like to describe it, it's a bit of a double edged sword. I, I think at times they they tend to rely on the power play far too often, which you know as long as they're winning the games, I guess it's a hard thing to criticize. But uh, you know, eventually they're going to start running into teams that have figured out not to take so many penalties, and if they can't figure out how to score at five on five, then obviously that will be an issue. Um, well, one, one but the, the Winnipeg game. One of the other things ahead. I want to talk about uh, for the for the Winnipeg Jets was this is when I started to kind of uh, see a lot of sheltering going on and a, a change in sheltering. Where and I'm sure you guys have seen this, but in the past the Jofa line has been just so sheltered. Uh, and I, this game, I kind of started to see them uh, start taking more uh, closer to fifty percent uh, offensive zone deployment rates. And what I with the biggest shift that I saw wasn't in the third and fourth lines that, like I thought I would see, but it was actually in that Turris, uh, Fiala, and Craig Smith line. And it's something that I see continually to, even to the game today against the Hurricane, or against the Carolina Hurricanes, uh, where, where the second line was, was so heavily sheltered that they're actually sacrificing a little bit of, a little bit of Jofa and a little bit of the fourth line, even though the fourth line is still pretty anti-shelter I guess they they start in the offenses only 33% of the time but it was really curious to see just because I don't know if it's because Peter Laviolette doesn't trust Kyle Turris yet as a as a center or if it's as I thought you know Turris isn't that good of a defensively minded center and he can't afford to put him in the defensive zone to start out that's definitely I think an advantage of having you know I'll, I'll look at it the other way and, and say that I think Turris is doing an excellent job so far, definitely offense in, in, in terms of offense. And I think the fact that they have now, the Predators have a very solid second line now. You know, we, we kind of play with the idea of it being a, a 1A and B kind of uh, first two lines. That would allow, you know, you can still perhaps afford to shelter your first line that's got your obviously kind of your big guns in terms of uh, pro- offensive production without having to overexpose kind of third and fourth lines, your, your worst lines, because now that second line is so good still, they can handle kind of being exposed in a, in a higher rate. But they're still getting that exposed, would be my though. That would be my hope. But right, the, that would be my hope. The, but you're as you're pointing out, that's not quite what we've seen yet. Yeah, Laviolette's just sacrificing Yarncroke and Bonino on the altar of second-line deployment. Like at, this case, at this point, they're just... They're sending Yarncroke and Benito out there just to kind of do whatever they can just to stifle top six talent, which I really like. Uh, Yarncroke has a defensive-minded center, uh, but he's playing wing, and it's a little bit harder for wingers to kind of contribute on defense, especially for ones that aren't elite like Marian Hosa um, or even Yuri Lettinen. But, uh, yeah, I I don't know. The, the thing that I keep coming back to is can this 
can this go on? Like, this will obviously work at home, but like we saw in other games and road games, especially day in Carolina, was that, that tourist line kind of got picked apart. Yeah, yeah and, and uh, uh, go ahead, Corey. I was going to say, in that, in that line with Turris and Fiala, the, I think the, the key component is going to be how Craig Smith does. How he, I mean, like even today, I think he had, you know, three hits, a few take or two hits, a couple takeaways. You know, he's trying to perform a little bit more defensively than what I guess we expect him to. And he is starting the defensive zone 55% of the time. You know, can they rely on him to to help out from that sheltering? I think that's what they're going to have to do. But you're right, they're going to have to, you know, put Turris and Fiala back there on the defensive zone every once in a while in, because they're not just – they need them on the ice, and they're not being on the ice in the defensive zone kind of hurts the, the team, in my opinion. They're not being able to, to play the passing lane and get a breakaway and use their speed to uh, get in the offensive zone quickly. It will be interesting to see how Turris continues. Obviously, it's still relatively you know fresh, his, his Predators career, so – I think I think George, you're kind of right, and and Corey as well. You know, it's going to be a combination of things. It's going to be tourists kind of gaining trust of of the coaches, and and also just becoming more comfortable. Uh, you know, obviously playing offense well with with new teammates is one thing, but learning how to kind of understand each other's defensive tendencies and and where to place yourself, uh, you know, on the back check and that sort of thing will probably take a little bit longer to develop. And then also, like Corey said, it's going to take the wingers on that line. Um, Craig Smith, especially, you know, being being kind of more experienced than his counterpart, Kevin Fiala, they're just going to have to figure out um, kind of trial by fire how to really upgrade their defensive game so that the Predators can, can continue. Hopefully, you know, I guess in a perfect world, you'd just be able to unleash the Jofa line on offense all the time and just try to bury opponents. Um, but obviously, that's that's not how it's going to work every night. Uh, we be- we better move along before we get too wrapped up in this <laughs> one, George. Sorry. Um, the uh, the Montreal Canadiens took Nashville to a shootout, uh, but uh, Nashville did get the win. I thought this one, the Predators had a great chance, I thought, here with Niemi and Nett, um, who, to his credit, played extremely well, I thought. Um, but the Predators, uh, this is kind of the, you know, if they take it to overtime, to me it seems like it was a bit of a missed opportunity to just put it away in regulation. But they did get the win. And actually, this one, if you look at... Um, kind of the possession numbers for the Montreal game, Nashville actually had the advantage for the entire game uh, in terms of Corsi. So they were generating almost all of the shots, um, you know, relatively speaking, of course. They did get out uh, outplayed in terms of high danger chances, though. Uh, Corey, did, I don't know if you were able to catch all these games, but uh, if you did, what, what were your thoughts on the, the Canadians game? I, I have similar thoughts on this game with the Canadians as I do the one from today. It seems like... And I hate I don't I don't mean to put down any other team, but when you look at it, this should have been a game the Predators won and won walking away. It should have been one of those games they scored four goals, held the other team to one or two, and went out with a win. But that's not what happened. I mean, yes, they went out with a win, but it shouldn't have been as close as it was. Um, you know, I, I think they played down to the level of their competition a little bit. They let they relax a little bit, maybe, or they're just not as focused as they are against other teams. Let's say you know the St. Louis Blues, who we'll talk about here in a minute. But it seems like they're they play down to that level of competition, and that could be dangerous for them throughout the season if they continue to do that. They've played a lot of really good teams. I think every team they've played has been above five hundred so far, except for maybe the Canadians. But they've got to they've got to step it up a bit against some of these teams. 
that I mean the one thing that I know that a lot of the predator like the players and the coaches alike when they were being interviewed about this Montreal game they they kept using the phrase desperate uh, to describe Montreal you know they're they're a desperate team and that's I think there's some truth to that um, the Canadians obviously have not had the start to their season that they wanted and that maybe even we expected um, they've had some issues with goaltender with you know, Terry Price being injured and uh, kind of you know controversy there but uh, yeah I, I agree you know on paper I thought this should have been you know, one of the, you know, a game that the Predators won by a few goals, but, and they, to be fair, they had that opportunity, if not for a missed wide open uh, empty net at the end, which then allowed the Canadians to score. That's, I mean, it's just scripted at that point, Mm -hmm. you know, when when the Predators miss that chance, you just know it's going to come back the other way. Uh, George, what were your thoughts on this one? Uh, I thought it was a little curious. I didn't catch all of it, but I caught the final uh, two periods. Um, yeah, this was a game the Predators probably should have won walking away. Uh, and it's almost like they bought their own hype. And they heard Antti Niemi was going to start in that. They said, all right, we won. And they yeah, expected right. an easy game. And that's just not... And I think a lot yeah. of fans probably did the same thing. I, mean, I, mean, I know I did, but, it, yeah. you know, it's, you, you can't... You can never do that in the National Hockey League where, where there's just so much parity, where any team can win on any given night. Um, yeah, uh... This was an interesting one just because, uh, once again, the the power play came out on top, and it's a little concerning. Um, the Predators shot from a very wide area. Uh, you can see on their heat map that it's just all over the place. It looks like a Jackson Pollock painting, but as far as the uh, Montreal Canadiens, I mean, there's the entire area around the net is just super dark. Like, they just got so many good chances in there, and... The Canadians have been a very good possession team all year long. They've just what they've failed to do is they failed to uh, to actually create any high danger chances out of that. But you know you got to give them credit; they did so against the Predators. They beat them out six to four, uh, including the uh, uh, including the uh, overtime period. So yeah, yeah. I think the interestingly the Canadians are are leading the NHL in terms of shots on goal, but last dead last in goals uh total goals scored so they're yeah perhaps an issue with shot selection there that the predators really failed to capitalize on because like you said they kind of allowed them into those more vulnerable areas um definitely more than you'd like you know it's one thing to to beat the you know to to allow a team to take shots from kind of deep in the perimeter up near the blue line uh where you really trust a player you know a goal center like pecorino you know especially the way he's been playing now you think if they take shots from the blue line, that's fine. You know, Rene's going to get those. Um, but those chances right in front of him are going to be tough no matter what. Yeah, this line, this game is also kind of weird because we saw a really good fourth line of Goudreau, uh, Aberg, and Salamaki, and they played excellently. Uh, they all had above 70 courses and above 70 Fenwicks. But it was a little funny to kind of see they, for players that generally, like Mika Salamaki generally starts in his own zone. But in that in this game, all of them had 100% offensive zone starts. It was very, it was interesting to see a lot of that fall on Yurm uh, Croak, Sissons, and then um, Benino as well. It's kind of funny to see that. Well, one thing that this is really puzzling, and I put it in my uh, kind of stats recap of this game is is all three of those players had fewer than seven minutes of time on ice total throughout the game. And normally, you see, you know, when, when like Cody McLeod's, and you'll see, you know, he has six minutes or whatever. And then his line mates will have closer to ten. It's very rare to me, in my experience, to see an entire line be so underused. You know, fewer than seven minutes total as a line, 
and that's a 65-minute game we're, we're talking about because of the overtime period. And it, it was puzzling because their numbers were great. And, I mean, like you said, they were they were just getting easy starts starting the offensive zone literally every single time they took a face-off. But I just wonder, you know, with a close game at the end, you know, to me, I, I don't know, maybe you just, you as a coach, you lean towards kind of the the tried and true lines. But if a, if a line's doing as well as, as the third was in this game, it, it was a little puzzling to see them um, get just way fewer minutes than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Corey, what did you, I guess this is the first game that we, we saw McLeod uh, omitted from the lineup, which I, I think is something that we've sort of tentatively, if not just overtly been hoping for um, uh, for a while now. now. Did, did, did you see any <laughs> negative or positive effects of the, uh, of the omission of Cody McLeod? Um, well, I mean, we still had a lot of penalties. I think against that in that game, there were what uh, six penalties called on the uh, on the predator. So, I mean, uh, that didn't help us at all. Uh, you know, I don't know if there's a positive or negative effect. I did see that the line of uh, Alberg, Giroux, and um, uh, Salamaki had a pretty decent run. I mean, it was again under seven minutes, like you had mentioned before, but. Corsi was great. I think they had like eighty, you know, eighty percent Corsi four or whatever. So I mean, like mm-hmm. there, there's there, there's some production there that could be uh, that could be used. And we saw that even to, even today with Auberg just uh, running around like crazy. I thought that was I think it was great to see him doing as well as he has. Um, so I don't know if there's any real positive other than you're getting some more possession, some better possessions out of that fourth line, but you're still getting the penalties. So I don't, I don't know if there's it's six of one, half dozen of the other. I think at this point. The something I've noticed about Gujarro and Aberg specifically, and and this is obviously their inclusion, both you know t- as a pair, their inclusion is really only possible if players like McLeod or Watson are held out. Both of them uh, have been playing, you know, their asses off. Basically, they've just been playing like they are really fighting for that spot, which is what you want to see because they are. You know that that's exactly what they're doing is is trying to stay off a flight to Milwaukee, and so far I think they've made a pretty good case. Um, for for sticking around my you know it's just odd to it's it's hard to compare either of them to to Cody McLeod the only similarity is that they take up a bit you know a spot on the bench they're totally all of them are totally different styles of players everyone knows that McLeod is there for a very specific role he's there to just kind of be the intimidator the 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 tough guy you know that that keeps things pretty calm you know, you can you can argue all day whether that's a valid you know position for a player, but I guess no matter what you think about it, it is great to see players like Pontus Aberg and Freddie Goudreau take that opportunity and really try to make the most of it by by making them you know putting them putting themselves right in the spotlight. I thought, and and you see even with the low utilization, having a line of Aberg, Salamaki, and Goudreau truly lead the team in in shot production. I mean. It's hard to argue that that they haven't battled for that spot, uh, George. I assume you want uh, you want McLeod back in the lineup, right? Of course, he's the best. Yeah, you're the biggest fan. Yeah, he was the reason why the Predators went on that nine game winning streak or ten game <laughs> point streak, whatever it was. Don't be a jerk. No, don't don't tell me what to do. <laughs> Um, yeah, the, the you know I guess I'll just to wrap up the the Canadians game. They did get the two points, and at the end of the day, you know you could you could argue that's all that matters. It was to me an, an opportunity wasted to really just hammer a team. Um, 
But, you know, they, they, they got it done through the and, – and Kyle Turris being Mr. Clutch in overtime once again, getting the shootout goal win. Uh, he, so far he's proven to be pretty much worth the trade and just in terms of his overtime abilities. Uh, <laughs> and that was tongue-in-cheek, yeah, so don't, wow. don't write me hate mail for that. Um, the uh, This was, in my opinion, a great win. The, the St. Louis game a couple nights ago, uh, going into St. Louis, obviously leading the Western Conference right now um, and, and getting the shutout. Uh, Pecorino getting number 45, becoming the leading Finnish goaltender for shutouts. Uh, and his father was in the building, no less. It was the start of the, the Predators' father's trip. Um, and I, I'm assuming we will figure out a way to criticize this performance, but as a whole, I was pretty pleased with their uh, their game against St. Louis. Um, George, why don't you kick us off and, and tell us why that's probably not the case? Uh, I don't have a ton of bad things to say about this game, um, other than uh, the usage of the second line was a little suspect, and... Um, and uh, St. Louis kind of capitalized on it, which was a little tricky. Uh, you could tell, though, that every time uh, every time Vladimir Tarasenko even lifted a skate to go on the ice, P.K. Subban was, was out there yelling at yelling at whoever was on there to get off. I mean, they, they were matching <laughs> yeah, right. really hard against him, uh, which is hard to do when you're not in. We don't have that last, uh, that, that last matchup. Um, uh, just from five-on-five, five, uh, the stats say that the Blues... We're just killing the Predators. Uh, I think it ended up 54 to 45 or 46 about. But when we adjust for score and for venue, uh, the Predators actually take a little bit of a bump and, and beat them out 51 to 49% or so. Uh, the thing that I came away from this game was not only did the Predators win on the uh, win on the road against a very good team without their power play, but they also uh, beat they also kept probably the hottest line in hockey or second line is hockey behind uh, behind Stamkos and Kucherov to only about four chances, uh, of which that line wasn't even on the ice for any of them. I mean, the Predators just handled them really, really well. And that's kind of been the kiss of death for St. Louis ever since, like, or probably for the last three or four years, is if Vladimir Tarasenko and his line aren't scoring, then not a lot of people are. And the Predators just kept him off the score sheet no matter what no matter what happened. It was, or no matter what, no matter what he did... The Predators were just on them like white on rice. It was great. Yeah, sort of a continuation of the the second round of the playoffs last year where Subban was basically invisible for that whole series because he was, you know, his role was to shut down Tarasenko's line, and, and he does it very well, um, kind of erases that from being a factor. I was particularly impressed. The, the Predators did not have a single power play in that game, and St. Louis had three. And uh, Nashville was able to kill, obviously, all three of those. So it was a, a game where they really needed to be strong in the PK, um, very low-scoring game, and they, they stuck out um, a full six minutes of, of penalty killing and did it very well. Uh, Corey, your thoughts on the, on the victory in St. Louis? I may actually be a little bit negative here. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Um, the one thing that stood out to me is that, I mean, on the, on the positive side, uh, yeah, we killed the penalty. St. Louis doesn't have a great penalty. Doesn't have a great power play anyway. They're middle of the pack, so we're around eighteen percent on their penalty ch- uh, penalty uh, power play chances this year. So I mean, they're they're middle of the pack. So that's that's cool. Um, we kept them away from the nets. That's the one real positive thing. They they were they weren't doing their they weren't shooting right in front of the net. They're a little bit further away, which is great. The only thing I will say is that the scoring came from one area, and that was the Johansson Arvidsson. Um, Forsberg line again. 
if you look at if you look at the people that were on the on the ice during the time, especially during even on that one even strength goal, it was the Joe Feline and Emelin and PK Subin. And if you go later on, you've got Subin on there again. You've got Johansson on there again. You're starting to see. Yes, we want the star players to kind of uh, lead the charge, but it would be great to see some production from a second line in a game like this. Uh, we don't. I don't know if I necessarily expect it from the third or fourth line when you're playing a stellar team uh, as the St. Louis Blues. But it can't. I don't think we can rely just on the front line on these in these games where we're playing elite competition, we've got to have production from other sides. And so I would like to have seen that a little bit more. Yeah, that's been a, a I think a, a real positive from the past couple of weeks has been the depth scoring ability of the predators. You're, uh, you're really starting to see players like Kevin Fiala, uh, Craig Smith, Kelly Arncrook, these kind of guys get their names on the score sheet. And that's been a real highlight. Um, I, yeah, you're right. It was, it was pretty much all Jofa, uh, in the, in the St. Louis game, I have, uh, you know, I don't have too much of a problem with that in, in a really tough game. I think you just, um, you take scoring from however you can get it. And basically I was, as long as the predators got the two points from the St. Louis game, it was going to be hard to, for me to be negative about it. That's just one of those games for me that as long as you get the win, you know, that that's what matters. It's obviously a huge game. Um, taking on the the divisional leader when it's a very tight race um, and grabbing the two points on their ice. I I just think that, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit of the fan in me rather than the analyst, but I was, (laughs) I was not going to be upset about that game pretty much uh, no matter what. And uh, it was sort of similar to the, to the Montreal game in terms of Nashville really dominating the, uh, um, kind of the the shot production for most of the game as as per usual it slipped to the opponents uh kind of uh during the third period that's you just see the predators i don't really know what it is it's obviously you know these guys know that it happens that pretty much at least halfway through the third period of almost every game they just kind of start sitting back and saying all right what have you got and and usually that results in closer games than than it should be but uh renee had another just incredible game he's he's just been in lights out form lately as we all know um and then the the last game that we should talk about is uh of course we're recording this on sunday night so the the game earlier today was uh in carolina and i will admit that i was driving back from uh being out of town for the holidays so i had to listen to a very spotty uh radio stream of this game so i did not catch very much of it so i will probably not be able to comment too much um, Corey, were you able to watch most of this game? Yeah, I've got in uh, about five minutes into the first period. We got home from doing our running around, and the uh, the Hurricanes had already scored at that point in time. And right, uh, it just seemed like the just like it was against <coughs> excuse me Montreal, a desperate team. Uh, the the Hurricanes were skating all over the place, going after the puck, putting sticks in the way, breaking up things as much as they could. Um, and you know they're, they they took it to the Predators for the first period. The second two, the second and third period, the Predators had better better chances, but weren't able to convert on all of them. Uh, but in the first period, I mean, they got outshot 15 to 9. Um, the Hurricanes uh, outshot the Predators 15 to 9. So uh, it took them a while to wake up. I don't know if it's an earlier start thing. I don't know if it, that playing at noon game, Central Time, is uh, it's great for the Predators. They just need more time to wake up. I don't know, but it took them a while. Um, and then they just got unlucky that third period. There's a couple chances right in front of the net where there's bodies just flying everywhere and they just couldn't get it in. Um, 
So it, it just, again, playing down to the level of competition, letting a desperate team kind of handle them at the start of the game. George, I don't know if you were able to catch the game. Yeah, I, I watched all of it. It was it was pretty interesting. I have a lot of respect for the Hurricanes. I really like their coach, Bill Peters. Um, they're just a young, fast, really good team. They're analytics darlings. I really, I really, I, I just really liked them. Uh, Sebastian Ajo was a treat to watch in that first period, especially. But as the game went on, he was everywhere. I don't necessarily know if I call them if I'd call them desperate but they were they definitely looked like they wanted the game especially right off the uh, jump uh, yeah I, I saw UC Saros catching flack in the beginning for the for his first goal but if you're gonna let Josh Jor- Joris I think Josh Joris of all people get a breakaway you probably deserve to get scored on because he's not exactly fast uh, it was a very spotty jump in by Roman Yossi that led to it and even uh, Matias Ekholm couldn't couldn't cover um the big thing that stood out to me was the uh, the Predators did a very good job of coming back and evening up high-danger chances, but in that first period, they just got smoked. I mean, they, there was 11 high-danger chances for the Hurricanes to the Predators, too, just in the first period alone. I mean, that's that's brutal. It was a good thing that the Predators actually scored uh, scored on one, or else it, would, like, it could have been a long game. Um, yeah. I just I'm looking at the the heat map right now, and while the Predators did a good job of getting of putting uh, over five shots in that in a high danger area and uh, below the circles, the the Hurricanes just did an incredible job of kind of encapsulating the entire net in red. They were just all over the place. UC Saros had a lot of very good saves, and this game, I mean Pecorino probably would have played very well too, but without great goaltending this game would have been over in the first period or by the end of the first period in my opinion yeah it's it's an interesting thing because i i know a lot of the player interviews kind of afterwards and the coach as usual you know defended defended saros and net and and said the kind of the same old uh mantra of you know we didn't play very well in front of him and so i'm curious if y'all think that that is you know if that's a legitimate thing if for whatever reason the the defense just kind of breaks down a bit more. I think my hunch is that just Pecorine has been so good that he's basically bailing this team out when things fall apart defensively. And as good as UC Saros is, he's not in that form of just saving the day several times a night. Um, so that's when you start to see a bit of these holes on defense a bit more. Um, but it is interesting that it just looks worse usually when, when Saros is in net, and that's obviously me just kind of using the eye test. Um, but I don't know. You you might disagree, Corey. Did, do you think that uh, perhaps there's a difference when Saros is playing, or is it just uh, maybe he's not quite at Rene's level? Well, he's definitely not at Rene's level. I mean, Rene's just been playing spectacular hockey. Um, I, I, I don't want to go to the point where Saros is equated to Rene at this point in time. But I do think today the people in front of him let him down a little bit. Um, I mean, for example, that breakaway goal in the first period, uh, Eckholm was right there and could have put a body on, um, oh, was it uh, Juros or whatever Josh his name Juris. Juris. Could, have, could have put a body on him and, and got the puck away, but he Juros just spun around him and, and made it to the net. And, you know, we talk about, you know, having top four defensive players. Well, Eckholm's one of those top, you know, one of those really great players, and he just didn't. There wasn't enough physicality from him at that point. He just he let it, he let it get by. Um, but the 
the team was definitely trying a lot of times to get down and, and block pucks. I know there was one great block by um, Emlyn in the third period. Just it, it was an open net, and had Emlyn not blocked it with his shin, that that puck would have gone in, and we'd be talking about a win in regulation as opposed to shut, uh, excuse me, a loss in regulation uh, or win for the Hurricanes in, uh, at that point of time had it not been for Emlyn. They're, they just get beat to the puck. The defense was getting beat to the puck, and they couldn't get out of their zone well enough, out of the defensive zone um, well enough uh, to to really give them a chance. I think that was the crucial part. They kept on you know, throwing the puck around the side of the wall and hoping to get it uh, off across the blue line, but then there would always be a hurricane right there to, to pick it off before it crossed the line. So, yeah, the defense let them down a little bit today, I think. And, and George, I think your comment was that uh, Alexi Imelin actually had a decent game, and uh, you and I both have been sort of negative about Emelin's, uh performance really throughout the season. So maybe you can fill us in on what you noticed, uh, some of the po- more positive aspects of Emelin's performance. Uh, today, I noticed him a few times, uh, but the, for Emelin to really stand out, in my opinion, he's going to be completely invisible, where he's just not making mistakes. He's playing a very solid defensive game. Um, but a couple points where he actually stood out in good ways to me was he led, he led like two charges up the ice at one point. One of them was like shorthanded too, which was very interesting to see. Uh, and then he had a couple of good, uh, keep-ins, uh, which I, I was very impressed with. He and Subin ate very tough minutes today against, uh, the TSA line, which is that Ajo, Stahl, and, Ter- and Teravainen line. And they only, they only together only had one offensive zone start. They started in the def- offensive zone 7.69% of the time. Um, and I-, I liked Emlyn quite a bit, but the thing I kept coming back to is, boy, is that third that third pairing bad? That uh, Irwin and, and uh, Batetto are just getting killed in their own zone. And I-, I think Irwin gets a little bit of credit because he's been very steady throughout the year. Uh, Batetto gets a little, bit, a little more credit than I think he deserves just because he's been... He's carried the puck up a few times. He's led a few rushes, and he's jumped into play, but he gets caught running around his own zone so much. Um, they were sheltered as all, as all hell, and they, I think, yeah, they started in the um, in the offensive zone about 50% of the time, which is a lot compared to uh, to Subban, which, again, like we said, was seven. And then, although, yeah, and even then Ekholm started, I think, in, in 46 or 47% of the time. Um, but... They just got killed in terms of high danger chances against, as well as quality competition that they were playing against. I mean, they were going up against bottom six guys, and they were still getting kind of manhandled in their own zone. Um, I've all, one of the things I've been keeping track of a lot recently has been zone exits, just from my own personal, my own personal articles. And one of the things I've noticed is that Batetto, uh, Batetto, Irwin, Irwin always tries to make a pass, but Batetto will just consistently just chip pucks out. If he can't skate it, he'll chip it, and. I've kind of been trying to put weight on it. You know, what's better? Is it better to skate it and risk risk turning over possession and turning, you know, not getting it out, or is it better just to chip and then surrender possession as is? And the more that I watch Potato, the more I think that maybe you should try to carry it out as much. But I don't, again, like I said, the more that I watch him, the more I think that I don't know if he really has a place on this roster. Well, something interesting I noticed. I I was at the uh, the Winnipeg uh, game, and I was sitting pretty close to kind of the 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 goal that the that Winnipeg shot on twice, and so I got to see it was definitely at least two times, and perhaps a few more that Batetto 
would would gain possession of the puck directly behind the net, and he would try his first his obviously the first thing on his mind is to try to make a move and carry the puck himself, and you know obviously no no disrespect to an NHL player, but he's you know he's not one of the guys that on the Predators uh, roster that I would really expect to be able to do something like that, especially while when the forecheck from the other team is still putting up a lot of pressure. And sure enough, he turned the puck over twice right in front of Pecorine because he was trying to make that move. And I don't, I don't know if that's just because, you know, obviously you watch PK Subban do that all the time. He, he loves being sitting behind the net and, and breaking out the play, you, you know, and, and Roman Yossi has just an incredible talent at, at kind of crossing into the neutral zone and the offensive zone. And I wonder if Potato just kind of wants to fit into that mold, but it's the, the fact that he was turning the puck over in the, in front of the net, and I, and I didn't notice the chip outs, you know, but I wasn't paying too much attention because obviously being at the game, you don't see quite as much as that of that stuff. But I've been a little Bitsetto has been a bit of a soft spot, I think, on this team, which is a bummer because I I do think just I think, in the you know, without knowing without really getting into the stats behind it, I think he's a better choice than Yannick Weber. Um and Irwin and he and Irwin have been okay, I think, uh, for a third pairing. But they did, like you, like you said, the numbers will support that they did pretty much get manhandled today um, in Carolina. Um, and so that's uh, that's kind of the the big uh, the four games of the past six days. Uh, one thing that obviously being seven games into the uh, appearance of Kyle Turris, we we have a, a little bit of a sample size now where we can really kind of break down. Uh, what he is contributing to this offense. Personally, I've been very pleased with Kyle Turris, uh, really because I think that he we owe him a lot for the kind of uh, sudden breakout of, of Kevin Fiala and, and con- continued success of Craig Smith. Fiala, I think, had been playing very well before Turris showed up, but now he kind of um, he's he's getting on he's breaking through and getting onto the score sheet as well. Um, and obviously, he uh, he's been really. Uh, Mr. Clutch and uh, kind of the overtime situations. Corey, what have you seen from uh, number eight? Uh, number eight. Yeah, I completely agree with you in the fact that you know maybe he may not. Of course, he's you know scored a couple of things in overtime. Like he won a shootout for us a couple. Of, you know, one of the games we talked about earlier, but he's really opened things up for Fiala. I mean, I think that's been the the greatest um, asset at this point in time is that not only do we have a center that can control some things and make some plays and is willing to go towards the net or, or make that make a crisp pass towards the net so that we can get a good scoring chance. Fiala and Smith have really played well with him. Um, Fiala notching a couple goals in recent games. Uh, Smith is just everywhere. I think he's just doing – I think that really opens up that second line, and that's why I would like to see that second line do, contribute more against the you know teams like the St. Louis Blues or like as we're coming up with the Chicago Blackhawks this week. You know, a couple points for that line would be great, but Terrace has definitely been um, the piece that was missing, I think, in the offensive side of things. I think it's really established that second line as a, a great line moving forward. Something that I've I just kind of looked, because I've been using mostly the eye test to, to really judge Kyle Terrace, and so far, like I said, I've been really pleased. Um, his his possession numbers are sort of uh, average or even a little below. His, uh, his Corsi is at a 47 right now at even strength through seven games. Um, and he's getting pretty much he's, – he's 
getting a slight advantage in terms of taking offensive faceoffs, but he's pretty much 50-50 in terms of uh, which zone he's starting in. Uh, George, I know you from the start you've been a little skeptical of this trade, not necessarily because of the player that Turris is now, but maybe the, the player that you think he will be in, in three, four years. Um, but so far, I guess through seven games, what have you seen from Turris? Uh, I really liked him. He's kind of been as I thought he would be. Uh, so far, the biggest thing that stands out is that he has two uh, even strength points uh, out of, I think it's like six points that he has now, uh, which is a bit concerning, but you, you kind of want a little more five-on-five production from your second-line center. But I think what, the biggest thing that he's done, like you said, was just kind of take some of the heat off Kevin Fiala, where now that it's not just Fiala on that line, it's you know teams kind of have to honor uh, Fiala's ability to pass and Terrace's ability to shoot and Craig Smith's ability to shoot. Um, yeah, I I'm a little I'm a little hesitant. I've never really been a huge fan of Terrace. I've kind of always seen his game as somewhat one dimensional, and because of his one dimensional game, he really does need uh, he he does need to be sheltered like he is. And um, we kind of talked about it right now in 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 Ottawa. He was getting. Uh, 61% offensive zone starts, and now he's getting 55, which is obviously much better than 61, but it's still a little bit over. And largely it's because, and largely it's due because it's due to the fact that the Predators have sacrificed some of uh, Jofa's um, uh, zone starts for that, which I've actually been very impressed with Ryan Johansson as a 2A center. I mean, we gave him a lot of credit because of his offensive prowess, but on the defensive uh, end of the puck, he's done, I think he's had like three or four, um, uh, he's created three or four turn- turnovers in the last like two or three games, just at the blue line, uh, taking away passes and just being kind of back as a center, which I've been very impressed with. But um, continuing on with Turris, uh, the good news for him, though, is even though his numbers aren't special, um, he's still creating uh, more high danger chances for than against with 19 to 15. And those are translated to more goals with uh, three goals to one to one goal against. The one thing that might be a little concerning is uh, he's riding a bit of a PDO wave with a 107.1, uh, and it's not the goals. His online shooting percentage is 10.64, or his team's is, rather, which isn't outlandish. I think that'll continue. But he's getting 96.5 uh, goaltending, which is better than Carey Price, Patrick Waugh, or Martin Berger has ever done in their lives, so... I don't. I think that he's gonna. It's probably gonna start being a little more even as far as goals against and goals for go. I did notice the PDO. He's he's writing like a nine, almost a nine five save percentage while he's on the ice. So he his performance may decrease. I you know you mentioned Ryan Johansson, which is always a bit of a trigger for me because I will fight anyone. Obviously not in real life. It's not who I am, <laughs> but I will digitally fight anyone who who. Uh, talks badly about Ryan Johansson really all over the ice. <laughs> I just don't. It's so rare that, in my opinion, it's so rare that he takes a step wrong. Um, and he just, he is like the beating heart of this team, uh, at least uh, in terms of their offense. And then he, do, he gets the job done on the back check as well. Um, basically, I've seen Kyle Turris is just a huge upgrade from any of the other second line center options that the Predators have, have had before. For me, it's it's a relatively new thing. I think actually for any National Predators fan, it's a new thing to have center depth on this team, to really be able to uh, kind of have several several forward lines that can continue that pressure and provide quality opposition for opponents. 
And uh, to me, it's just like I'm just kind of in, in hog heaven right now with uh, how excited I am to have several lines that can really compete. Um, you know, I, this that was my big uh, kind of big first item on the checklist for the offseason was to address the lack of depth at the center position. And I don't think that they did it in the offseason. So um, at least in, in, in the short term, I think they've done a great job. Uh, to, to address that issue um, pretty early on in the season. And I think that a lot of the Predators' success in the recent games has been not necessarily because of tourists specifically, but the fact that the whole team is much more even threat um, rather than only the Jofa line uh, threatening opponents as much as as much fun as it is to, to watch the Jofa line play. Uh, and then speaking of, of forward lines, the this has been <laughs> very interesting in my opinion now we have a surplus of centers uh, on the National Predators, so we decided they decided to put all three of them, or, or three of them rather, on the third line. So the third line uh, for the past couple of games has been uh, Colton Sissons, Nick Benino, and Cali Yarncroke. And uh, fans of hockey will probably recognize that those are but all three uh, centermen. And I, uh, I I haven't actually looked at the line specifically to see how they've done as as a unit. Um, it's it's I think you could could agree, Corey, that it's a bit unconventional to put three three of the same position players on the same line. Yeah, I would say so. But then I've also watched basketball games where they would go a forward and four guards. So, I mean, there's, it, it can work and depending on who you have. But I don't know if these are the right pieces to do that with. Um, I know that they're. Um, I know they're all three centers. I know they're all capable of, of winning the faceoff or whatever they need to get, you know, whatever, they, whatever the team needs and they're willing to do. I just think you're not playing to their skill set as well as you could, especially with uh, Yarn Croak and, and Sissons. I think those guys, one of those needs to be a center for the fourth line. Uh, one of those needs to be anchoring that line, and maybe that's Yarn Croak, maybe that's Sissons. I don't know which one, really which way I'd go with it. Um, but I feel like, Players like Aberg need a little bit of help on that back line if they're going to be back there, or Salamaki. And I don't, I know Gaudreau's back there right now as well. I just think splitting up the three would be great. Um, leaving Benino as that as that center for the third line, kind of anchoring that. You know, I, George, I know you put together a piece um, on on this subject as well. Uh, what what are you thinking? What do you who do you think should go to the fourth line, or who, what do you think should happen? Well. I'm a big fan of committing to things in general, uh, and I think that the Predators should probably just commit to a shutdown line rather than what Peter Lovett's trying to do right now, which is just trying to spread to have a little bit of everything on on the bottom pairing or on the bottom two lines. Um, I think that Benino is not a shot suppressionist, and he's never really been, and it would be foolish to try to put him into that role. And I do think that while Sissons and him are okay two-way players, I think they're much more inclined offensively. And so at that point, just, you know, lean into it. Put Sissons on the on the right side, put Benino at center, and then put Aberg or whoever you want on that on the left side. I only say Aberg because I know that he's a very offensively gifted player, and I think I've seen a little bit more out of him over the last few games than I have uh, earlier in the season, and I've really liked it. I think that goals will come for him eventually. Uh, and then that, that fourth line will be uh, centered by uh, Yarn Croak and then have Selimaki there because they were just incredible. Over With over 18 minutes of game time against top six talent, they gave up uh, three Fenwick against, and I think uh, four or five uh, Corsi against. 
in in 18 minutes. Like they those are incredible numbers, and they were playing against Malkin and oh, I forget who the other who the other top. It was Crosby and Malkin, and then some. It might have been Shifley and and then uh, Wheeler, but I can't remember exactly. Um, yeah, and then from there you put Salamaki there, and then uh, you could kind of put Freddie Goudreau, or you, my personal favorite would be to put Austin Watson, who's a very good, uh, who's a very very good at, at suppressing shots from the wing, or uh, suppressing shots from the point rather, uh, and just kind of lean into it. But the, the what's going to have to happen is you won't be able to play lines like they are now, where you have where you have Joe Flynn, you have the second line with eighteen minutes, and then you have the third line with 13 or 14, then you have the fourth line with 16, or I'm sorry, with like six minutes or seven minutes. It's going to have to be like 16 and 16 for the first two, and then 13, 13 or 13 and 12 or whatever for the, uh, for the bottom, for the bottom two. And what's going to come down to is it's going to come down to matching lines. And you know, you're, you're obviously going to have your Jofa line match the first, then you're going to have that yarn crook line match the second line, uh, which is going to be tough, but they can do it. And then you'll have, uh, tourist line face the the th- opposing third line, and then you just you know you just hope that the Benino line can overpower the other team's fourth line, uh, and it's not going to be easy. But I and it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be a little tricky on the road, but it, I think that that really has a good shot of working. Yeah, and I, I agree with you on the whole aspect of consistency. Like getting established, let it go. You know, finding that I finding a finding a way for it to work as a group. I think that's I think that's gonna be the important thing. They need to get it done pretty quick, though. Um, just to briefly wrap up, we can't get into this too much, but uh, over the past three games, this line, this third line of Yarn Crook Sissons, um, and uh, uh, sorry, I'm blanking, Benino, mm. um, they have been heavily used in the uh, in the defensive zone. They've taken. Let's see. Six point six percent of their total faceoffs have been in the offensive zone, um, which is actually just one. They've taken one offensive zone face uh, faceoff as a line, and they are currently um, doing very well uh, for shot uh, shot production. They have a, a fifty four Corsi at five on five. So I think uh, George, you kind of hit on it. It's this is supposed to be kind of a, or at least in theory, this line would be used as kind of a shot suppression line, and that's in terms of where they're starting on the ice, you'd think that that's pretty consistent with that idea. Um, but I agree. You're, you're only going to do people favors if you spread, if you can spread ice time out more evenly. Um, I think they've started to go in the right direction defensively. You're not seeing, you know, at home and, and Subban have like 30 minute games quite as often. Um, so now to, they need to kind of turn that eye to the, the forward lines as well. Um, See, I think we got about uh, ten minutes left, so let's let's just go ahead and, and get in into the the week ahead. Obviously, we got a couple of uh, kind of uh, big games, I guess you could say. I, I don't want to say nasty games in terms of just kind of rivalries, but obviously, they got Chicago coming into town on Tuesday night. Always a good time. I'm always a little worried about Chicago, but uh, to be fair, they have struggled recently. They're currently sitting right behind the Predators in fourth. In the central, but there is a six-point difference between the two teams. Um, the, the Blackhawks have kind of been struggling to get it going. Uh, uh, George, I, you and I, for for I think a couple years now, have been talking about perhaps the the beginning of the end for the Chicago Blackhawks. Do you think that uh, the Predators will have the advantage in this in this matchup? Um, I depends. Uh, it depends which Corey Crawford shows up. Is it? 
Vesna winning Corey Crawford like he has been earlier this season, or will he fall back as of late, um, or as, as he kind of has been a little bit recently? I'm I I don't know. It's kind of a trap game, really. I I every year I make predictions about how the Blackhawks are going to be and how they're going to be really bad or how age is finally going to come come back to get them and it never happens. And then even when it has started to happen this year, they've still somehow found ways to win or Corey Crawford's gone on a tear. And although that they've been cold, you know, for, for a little bit of this season, I still feel like they could come back and they could snap right out of it and be the team that we saw them as in the first 10 games of, of this season. So I, I'll give, I'll probably give it to Nashville just because they're, they're a little bit more consistent, but I don't know. It could be anyone at this point. And Corey, your thoughts? Um, well, you know the the Blackhawks are actually six three and one in the last ten games. Uh, one of those wins came um, against the New York Rangers, who are probably the hottest, if not the second hottest team in the league right now. With the Predators, I think they are uh, eight and two in the month of November as well, or something very close to that. So, you know. They're the Blackhawks aren't. They're not horrible. They have they have they do have a uh, goal differential of plus ten. But the game is at home. The Predators are going to be a little bit disappointed after the game they just had against Carolina. Uh, the fans are going to be involved. I think that's going to be a very big help for them. I see the Predators probably squeaking this one out. Um, you know, Chicago's great on the road though. They're six four and one on the road. So it's there's there's a lot of. It could go either way. I'm going to say that the Predators are going to wind up winning this one, though, on the road. Oh, excuse me, at home uh, with the fans behind them. I certainly, you know, I, the Hawks are just, kind of like George mentioned. It's always a bit of a trap game. I think uh, it's uh, on paper. I expect I'd expect Nashville to win this game, but as we know, the this matchup uh, can can be a little unpredictable. Um, for example, last season Chicago won four of the regular season matchups and then got swept in the playoffs. So. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to predict exactly. I know that uh, I haven't seen a ton of Chicago this year, but I know that they've really um, they've relied on players. I think like uh, Brandon Saad's doing well. They have the Alex DeBrincat's been incredible. I think he's 18 years old. I mean, he's been very good. He's, he's, um, he's 20. I know they've had he he played yeah oh, he played he? over age in the in the OHL for Erie Otters. Oh, okay. He's still okay. super young, um, but he's. <laughs> Well, I was watching some some game, and they said he was like finishing his high school diploma or something. Maybe he's just doing that a little late as well. Um, but yeah, anyway, he's been. I think he's been a highlight for them, and um, I know like players like I think Duncan Keith is is uh, goalless so far this season. You know, uh, he's he's obviously a, a leading defenseman in the league usually. So it will be interesting to see how they respond, how Chicago responds to kind of a a new emerging rival while they've been struggling a little bit. Um, this will be one that I'm, I'm all about the two points. Uh, those big kind of divisional rivalries. I'm just kind of like, let's, let's just get the win um, and, and worry about the, the numbers later. Mm. Um, after that on Thursday night, we'll have uh, a, I hesitate to say a much easier matchup against the Vancouver Canucks who I think, the, correct me if I'm wrong, the Canucks have been a little better than perhaps we expected this year. Yep, you're right. It's very surprising. I don't, <laughs> I don't get them. They're, see, they're, they're sitting just behind San Jose in the uh, Pacific. It's, it's all Brock Besser. He's so good. I, yeah, he's been great. I, in the beginning of the year, I thought, well, I like everyone else thought that Clayton, Clayton Keller was going to be the, the de facto Calder winner, and then 
Brock Besser has kind of come out of nowhere to, to, to almost take that title. I know he's been really hot as of late. Um, I'm going to pull up his stats, but yeah, I the team, I don't really understand how Vancouver's been doing as well as they have. They've been getting excellent goaltending from uh, from Jacob Markstrom and Andrews, I think it's Andrews Nelson. Uh, I think their 5-on-5 five five combined um, save percentage was like 9-3-4. They're just, like, they've just been absolutely killing it recently. Um, Michael Delzato's had a very good year. Uh, Alex Edler's been pretty good, if I remember correctly. Uh, the Sedins have kind of rekindled a little bit of their magic, but they've been doing really, really well on a second line, on a second line role. Um, and then Bo Horvat is, is uh, I'm sorry, Bo Horvat and Sven Berchi have looked very good on that first line, so... I'm pretty happy with them. Um, yeah, Brock Besser has 22 points in 20 games, with 11 of those being goals. Uh, yeah, wow. he's he's doing really well, and it looks like he's playing second or third line minutes, with averaging 16 minutes and 13 seconds on ice. I think he put up four on Matt Murray the other night as well. <laughs> yeah, I think four four of those goals came for one game. Um, yeah, he's going to be perhaps they'll have to that will be Subban's assignment for the evening. Will be Brock Besser. Yeah. Probably uh, just shut that down. Uh, and uh, and Corey, I, you know, my I guess my my prediction would be this should be two points from Nashville, but maybe you disagree. Should be yes. Will it be? I don't know. The one thing that we will find surprising about the Vancouver's record this year is that they're eight four and zero on the road this year. They're eleven nine and three overall. They're eight four and zero on the road. So they're well above 500. Uh, I guess they're at 66% of their, of their games on road. They win. Um, so I don't, I don't discount them at all. I mean, they've, they've, they've played tough on the road. They are 1-1-2 one, one, and two against the Central Division. So that bodes well for, for Nashville. Nashville's really good at home as well. But, you know, I, I, I don't want to discount any team. Now, after watching what the Predators have done to – or what happened to the Predators today and, and what happened against Montreal, I don't want to discount any team. Should it be a win? Absolutely. But Vancouver is performing so well on the road that it gives me a little bit of pause and wants to give them a little bit of a chance to win this game. And they're not uh, – Vancouver's playing Tuesday night, so they, I expect to see Jacob – I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Jacob Markstrom in, in the net. He's got a 9.09 save percentage right now. Um, so obviously, at least in terms of, of performance so far this season, Nashville will have the advantage there, assuming Pecorino is in net. Um, hopefully I can imagine this being one that comes down to Rene having to make some really huge game saving, uh, saves, but I guess that's just kind of the norm these days. Uh, yeah, I would hope for, I would hope for two points against Vancouver. I know that they've, they've been a little better perhaps than we thought, but, um, I'd still be very hopeful for two points against this team. Mm. Uh, and then finally they've got a matchup against Anaheim Ducks. The Ducks are still pretty injured, so um, this, the, the Predators are getting a bit of a pass. They're not facing quite the the Ducks at full strength. Um, and I'm ashamed to say I haven't even looked to see where this game is. Does, can, can one of y'all fill me in? Bridgestone. The next, I think the next five games are at home, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, is that right? Wow, okay. Well, that'll be fun, uh, having, the, having the Ducks in town um, to kick off December. Uh I guess real quick, we'll, just, we'll, we'll have to wrap this up. But uh, I, I predict um, at least one point, hopefully two, against uh, Anaheim. George, what is your prediction? Uh, supposedly Getzlav, Kasha, uh, and then um, Kessler didn't make the trip with Anaheim for their road trip. 
So expected them to be missing their two first line centers again. Um, so I expect a, expect a win. Although who knows, maybe John Gibson pulls him a rabbit out of a hat. Right. And Corey, your prediction? Um, I'm going to say this may be a game where we see uh, Soros and Net. So I'm going to say one point. Uh, but it all depends on who's on, who's in that for the for the Predators that day. So I, I expect a win of some sort, uh, pro- but maybe in a uh, an overtime win. That all right? Uh, well, thank you all, listeners, for joining us, and thank you to to Corey and George as always. And uh, look forward to another high caliber week of opponents for the National Predators. Some some nice home games to uh, kick off kind of the start to December. Um, Other than that, uh, thanks again both, and we'll talk to everybody next week. All right. See you guys.